Yeah. So the next thing we talk about is the hydatidiform mole or what we call the H mole. So with the hydatidiform mole, we have little or no embryonic tissue. The trophoblast develops well. Sometimes, like I said, you may see fetal tissue, sometimes you may not. And it may transform to give us a choriocarcinoma. So how we suspect this is that when we measure, uh, we aside us just testing to see if there is beta-HCG, we can also do quantitative measurements of beta-HCG where we measure the absolute quantities. So with idatidiform mode, the beta-HCG levels are higher than normal. That's what makes gynecologists suspect idatidiform mole. So that's just something about them. So you will learn a bit more about them, what leads to them, um, means of management when you get to the higher levels. Yeah. So now we'll be talking about fetal membranes. So we'll be talking about, on that, when we're considering the fetal membranes, we'll be talking about the amnion, we'll be talking about the chorion, and we'll be talking about how the fetus contributes to the formation of the placenta. So the very, the, the, the very first things we'll be talking about will be the umbilical vesicle, the amnion, alanto, and the chorion. So for the umbilical vesicle, remember I told us, you all saw that slide, right? Yeah. So remember I told us in the second week, the second week is the rule of, uh, follows the rule of twos, right? And in, in some texts, when you read them, they'll tell you that the second week is the week of the bilaminar jam disc. What that just means is that the embryoblast differentiates into two, two layers. That's why they call it bilaminar. And because the embryoblast is what gives rise to everything within the fetus, that's why it's called the germ disc. So with the embryoblast, as the embryoblast is differentiating, the trophoblast to differentiate into two layers, the syncytial trophoblast, that's a Y, sorry about that, and the cytotrophoblast. So like I said, the syncytial trophoblast is just a multinucleated syncytium formed by cytotrophoblastic cells fusing together and losing clear cytoplasmic outline. So all you just see will be multiple nuclei and just a single blob or a syncytium. Then, like you said, from the hypoblast, we start seeing cells that are going to be migrating on the inside of the cytotrophoblast. What I said we call the exos... Um, it ultimately is going to migrate from a rim on the inside of the cytotrophoblast that we call the exosolomic membrane or the HUSAS membrane. And by the time we get to that, we're going to change the name of the cavity because now we formed a new cavity and the cavity is going to become the exosolomic cavity. I talked about all this before, so this is just a review to, to touch base on what we've talked about before. And like I said again, as that is happening with the hypoblast, some days after in the epiblast, you see some cells migrating again from the superior pole of the epiblast. So those migrating cells are going to be called the amnioblasts. 
and ultimately they're going to form a membrane or a layer that will cover a cavity underneath them so the that membrane or that layer of cells is going to be called the amnion and the cavity that they're going to delineate is going to be called the amniotic cavity yeah So those amniogenic cells are also the amnioblasts I've talked about. Then, like I said, those amnioblasts are going to form the amnion at the roof of the amniotic cavity. Then the epiblast is going to form the floor of the amniotic cavity. Yeah. So by the time we're getting to this stage, now we formed the exosilomic or the user's membrane and that's forming the um, exosilomic cavity or the primary yolk sac then in your before we are born this primary yolk sac is also called the primary umbilical vesicle if you pre-read the before we are born before you came you see that the exosilomic cavity or the primary yolk sac is also called the primary umbilical vesicle. Yeah. So let's go on. So for this primary yolk sac, it is important because it's the first site where we're going to form blood cells. It's the first site where we're going to form blood cells. It's going to contribute to the development of the primordial gut. Then primordial germ cells are going to arise in the endodermal lining of this yolk sac. So remember, when you guys are talking about both the male and the female reproductive system, they tell you that you have a gonadal ridge that forms in the intermediate mesoderm. It's just a thickening of mesenchyme in the intermediate mesoderm that is going to form the connective tissue surrounding it. But the spermatogonia and the oogonia are not formed in that gonadal ridge. They migrate from the endodermal lining of the yolk sac to get into the gonadal region, and they're going to give you the primordial. So those primordial germ cells migrate from the endodermal lining of the yolk sac into the gonadal ridge, and they're going to now give rise to the spermatogonia in the male and the oogonia in the female. And like I also said, the very first blood vessels, the very first blood cells, the first, first blood vessels are going, to form, are going to form in this primary yolk sac. Yeah. Then, another thing we need to talk about, from the, after we form this exosilomic cavity or the, prim, um, the primary yolk sac or the primary umbilical vesicle, we're going to see some cells that start migrating from that same endodermal lining of that yolk sac. So those cells are going to start migrating, and ultimately, they're going to insinuate themselves between the exosilomic membrane and the cytotrophoblast. And because those cells are mesenchymal, or, or they look mesodermal in they look mesodermal when we look at them and when we consider their origin, we'll regard that as the extra embryonic mesoderm. So, recap. From the, the same endodermal lining of this yolk sac, 
we're going to have cells that would acquire a mesenchymal um, transition. They pull apart from that endodermal lining, start migrating between this exosilomic membrane and the cytotrophoblast, and they're going to form what we call an extra embryonic mesoderm. Yeah? Then, the next thing I'm talking about is the Alantua. So it's, it, because it's a French word, that's why we call it the Alantua. So it arises as a diverticulum of the yolk sac from the third week and extends into the body of the connecting stalk. So how did we get to the connecting stalk? So remember, fine, there is no image here, right? Because I didn't want to load your slides with too many images. I just have had like 100 slides and won't get through it. So when you get back, go check the before we are born. Once we, get, once we see the extra embryonic mesoderm, eventually cavities are going to develop in that extra embryonic mesoderm. And they're going to ultimately coalesce. And we'll have an extra embryonic coelom. And what the extra embryonic coelom will do is it splits the extra embryonic mesoderm into two layers. We have an outer somatic layer and we have an inner splanchnic layer. We're still talking about the extra embryonic mesoderm. Then there will be just a bridge between both, which we'll call the connecting stalk. And this Alantua now is going to be a diverticulum of the primary yolk sac into the connecting stalk. Then this Alantua, again, importance, it's another early site of blood formation. And if you remember your histology, when you guys were discussing connective tissue, when you talked about um, embryonic tissue, looked at mucous membrane, you should still have the slides somewhere. Go back and look at it. So you have the two umbilical arteries, you have one umbilical vein, then you had another structure that had the lumen in it. If you remember the slides, fine. If you don't, go back and check it. That little structure that had the lumen in it was actually the Alantua. Then, blood vessels that form in the Alantua, that's even the main reason why we're learning about it, will end up giving rise to the umbilical arteries and the umbilical vein. Remember, normally we're supposed to have two umbilical arteries and one umbilical vein. And in the adult, this Alantua is going to... Um, umbilical arteries and umbilical vein. So ultimately, it's going to obliterate, and in the adult, it forms what we call the uricus or the median umbilical ligament. Median umbilical ligament because it's in the median plane. And you need to make that distinction because you're going to, when you guys come into your anatomy wet lab, you're going to talk about the median umbilical ligament, medial umbilical ligaments, and lateral umbilical ligaments. So it's the alantua that obliterates to form initially the uricus, then later on, postnatally, it becomes the median umbilical ligament. Importance, early site of blood formation. It's blood vessels form umbilical arteries and veins. The mesoderm around it differentiates to give us the Watson's jelly that you guys talked about then, which is a form of embryonic connective tissue, a mucous connective tissue rich in gags, specifically hyaluronic acid, specifically hyaluronic acid, if you guys remember. So, now we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about the amnion. Yeah. So, remember, how did I say the amnion forms? I have some cells that migrate from the epiblast to go form an arch 
over the epiblast. Those migrating cells are called amniogenic cells because they're going to form the amnion or amnioblasts. And ultimately, once they're done with their migration and they form the full arch, we're going to have an amnion forming the roof and we're going to have the epiblast forming the floor and the cavity that's going to form between both is going to be called the amniotic cavity. You remember that, right? Yeah. Then, what's also going to happen is that, yeah. of course, the amnion surrounds the embryo with further development, the yolk sac gets, initially, the embryo uses the yolk sac pretty much as, the, pretty much the same way other species uses, use the yolk sac. It uses as a source of stored energy a ready source of energy, keeps deriving its energy from it. So ultimately, the entire yolk sac is going to get, all the energy within it is going to get extracted and it's going to get absorbed into the mid-gut. But you, you may learn about that when you do the embryology of the GI tract. So this amniotic fluid now, why do we need it? It's a source of amnion, it's a source of maternal blood. So the, the, the amniotic fluid, where it comes from? It comes from the amnion, those cells in the amnion, secreted part of it. Part of it comes from transudation from the maternal blood. The fetal urine too is pushed into the um, skin from the fetus is pushed into there. Then secretions from the fetal respiratory tract is pushed into there, right? So some, some people are making the yuck faces when I say the fetal urine is pushed into the amni amniotic fluid. So it gets more interesting. Why? So the amniotic fluid is composed mostly of water, has small amounts of protein, glucose, vitamins, antigens. And it circulates, it, it changes every three hours. And the thing again is, how do we excrete it? That's where I said it gets yucky, right? The fetus swallows the fluid. So the fetus pees into the amniotic fluid. That's part of the ways in which we add to the amniotic fluid. But to excrete it, the fetus swallows it. And it gets excreted out through the umbilical arteries. And what this amniotic fluid does, the, the function of the amniotic fluid. So if I had a ball in a tank, and the tank is surrounded by water, if I hit the wall of the tank, does, should the ball feel the full pressure? From the, full force of, um, the full force of the pressure with which I hit the tank? No. So what it does is that it acts as a shock absorber. Then it maintains, it acts like a cooling system for the developing human. It maintains a, a um, constant temperature. It allows for fetal movements. Like when some people go to, for checkups during pregnancy, they tell them because they need to determine which way the fetus is facing, that the fetus is just turning all over the place because it's swimming in the amniotic fluid. It allows for symmetrical growth. Then the act of the fetus swallowing the amniotic fluid aids in development of the lungs then it has some antibacterial substances within it and also acts as an hydrostatic wedge yeah so as the fetus keeps growing the amniotic fluid keeps increasing and ultimately this amniotic fluid is going to fuse with the wall of the chorion obliterating the coronic cavity so the coronic cavity where did that come from it was the, exo, um, the extra embryonic coelom that I talked about that's going to become the coronic cavity. 
So in the long run, as the amniotic cavity keeps enlarging, it's going to obliterate everything between it and the chorion, such that ultimately the, the outer membrane of the amniotic cavity fuses with the underside of the chorionic cavity and will form a single amniochorionic membrane. Then the fetus flows in the amniotic fluid and it's only the umbilical cord that's attaching it to the placenta. And as I said before, the umbilical cord is formed from the bridge across the extra embryonic coelom that connects the developing human to the developing placenta, which was the connecting stalk. So ultimately, the connecting stalk is going to become the umbilical cord. Yeah. Yes. So disorders of amniotic fluid volume, we can either have low amniotic fluid volume or a higher than normal amniotic fluid volume. So volume less than 400 to 500 mils in the, in the third trimester would say the woman has oligoidramnios. Then as um, some, um, some causes of oligoidramnios, we have preterm rupture of the amniochorionic membrane. Then we may also have urinary system anomalies. Because remember, we said fetal urine also contributes to it. So if we have urinary system anomalies, meaning either we are not producing fetal urine or we are not able to secrete it into the amniotic fluid, then also placental insufficiency because we, remember we said a bit of it comes also from maternal blood. Affects 4% of pregnancies. Then remember, we said part of the function was that the act of the fetus swallowing that amniotic fluid helps in lung development. So if there's not enough amniotic fluid, there's not enough, not enough to swallow, meaning the lungs don't develop as well as they should. Then we may also have facial or limb deformities. Why? Aside acting as a shock absorber, it also gives the fetus space to grow into. So if that space is smaller than normal as a result of we not having enough amniotic fluid, that means the fetus does not have enough space to grow into. So that means either we may come down with facial anomalies or limb anomalies or even anomalies on the trunk or on the body wall. The converse of that is polyhydramnose, where we have excessive amniotic fluid volume. We, in terms of absolute measurements, we say volumes in excess of 2,000 mils in the third trimester. So for polyhydramnose, for the most part, we don't know what, what's causing polyhydramnose. But in, some, in the cases where we do know, it may be as a result of maternal factors or fetal factors, which are evenly split between themselves. So maternal factors, multiple pregnancies, maternal diabetes. For fetal factors, we may have digestive system anomalies, where the fetus, remember, we said to excrete it, the fetus has to swallow it, and it gets into the umbilical arteries and passes on through the placenta, through the mother, and out of system, right? So if the fetus has any GI tract anomalies, anything blocking the GI tract, we can't absorb it. Then if the fetus has central nervous system anomalies, marrow, encephaly, and encephaly, meaning the nervous system is not working. And of course, remember, it's a nervous system that innervates the muscles. In this case, muscles of swallowing, meaning the fetus can't swallow. 
So the amniotic fluid has been produced, but it just remains in there. We can't swallow it and push it out of the system. So this is less common than oligoagramnios. And the complications could be that because it's, it causes a, a, an hyper-enlarged uterine cavity can predispose to preterm labor and delivery, then it can also predispose to premature rupture of the amniocorionic membrane because remember there is too much fluid in there, it's putting too much pressure on that membrane and the membrane can rupture or burst. So, Another thing that we can talk about when we talk about the amnion and disorders associated with it will be the amniotic band syndrome. So remember I said we have the amniotic membrane delineating the amniotic cavity. Sometimes we may actually have bands or strands coming from that amniotic membrane. And what that can do is it can wrap around fetal limbs. And what that can do is it can either it can either amputate it outrightly or it cuts off blood supply such that the fetus comes out, you see that distinct constriction ring on the fetus and the limb is smaller compared to the parts proximal to the constriction. So it can either cause outright amputation or it just causes the distal portion of the limb to atrophy by cutting off the blood supply. So. That's a fancy picture showing that. Yeah. So, Korean. We talked about amnion before. So now we're talking about the Korean. So I've already talked about all this before now. I said from the hypoblast, cells migrate, from the exosilomic or the... Sorry, this is... That spelling is wrong. It's actually H-E-U, or the Husserl's membrane. And this cavity changes name from the blastocyst cavity now into the exosilomic cavity, or the primary yolk sac, or the primary umbilical vesicle. It's obviously cytotrophoblast, cytotrophoblast, epiblast, hypoblast, which collectively we call the bilaminal germ disc. Then you have the amnion on top amniotic cavity between the amnion and the epiblast, then you have the syncytiotrophoblast eroding into the maternal endometrium, right? Then, as I told you guys previously, you would have some cells that will migrate from the inner, from the endodermal lining of this primary umbilical vesicle, and they're going to form a mesodermal or a mesenchymal structure between the exosilomic membrane and the cytotrophoblast. And this, it's, that's lilac, right? Yes. This lilac structure is going to be called the extra embryonic mesoderm. That's the extra embryonic mesoderm. And of course, we call it the extra embryonic mesoderm because it's outside the embryo. And like I said, it fills the space between the trophoblastic wall and the wall of the amniotic cavity and the primary yolk sac. Yeah. Then now we're talking about formation of the extraembryonic silum. Like I said, within that extraembryonic mesoderm, we're going to have cavities that will start forming. So you can see the beginning of the cavities. You're seeing the cavities forming. Then ultimately, all these cavities are going to 
coalesce. They're going to fuse. And they're going to separate that extra embryonic mesoderm into two layers. An outer layer that lies just underneath the cytotrophoblast that we call the somatic layer. And of course, because it's a somatic layer of the extra embryonic mesoderm, we call it the extra embryonic somatic mesoderm. Then we're going to have a layer that's closely opposed to the wall of the primary yolk sac that we're going to call the splanchnic layer of the extra embryonic mesoderm. And because it's the splanchnic layer of the extra embryonic mesoderm, we, also, we can alternatively call it the extra embryonic splanchnic mesoderm. So I mentioned all this, fused to form. Then the extra embryonic silome is also alternatively called the chorionic cavity. So, so like I said, in biology, fine, we have lots of pictures. Just talking about the pictures, sometimes you don't get the big picture, ex except if you're used to dealing in abstract things, you're used to manipulating structures in your head. That's why I recommend you watching videos. Like I said, if you put in your code for your before we are born into inkling, and you download the before we are born, it has the videos that can show you the fancy transformations, try to give you a 3D orientation of how this is going on then. You can also watch sites by some medical schools. I think I use a channel on YouTube called Embryology. It doesn't give any lectures, but it's just showing you the videos as the thing goes on. But make sure you use a site that's done by a medical board or like a medical school. Don't just go open a random site because like I always say, a random person can just go on YouTube and post embryology pictures. I, so you need to look at the site, see that it's correct medical information that they're posting. That's why I always go for sites posted either by medical school or medical boards. Yeah. So the Quranic sac. So remember I said the extra embryonic silomat um, splits the extra embryonic mesoderm into the extra embryonic splanchnic mesoderm on the inside and the extra embryonic somatic mesoderm on the outside. So that extra embryonic somatic mesoderm with its overlying cytotrophoblast and syncytiotrophoblast is going to form the fetal part of the placenta which is what we call the Quranic membrane. It's going to form the fetal parts of the placenta. Then the, the Quranic wall itself is made up of just the, since um, it's, it's, the, the, the that Quranic membrane, which is also the Quranic wall, as I just said, is made up of the, you can see all this, right? It's made up of the, this is the extra embryonic, somatic mesoderm, this is the cytotrophoblast, and that's the syncytiotrophoblast. So all these three make up the chorionic wall, and the chorionic wall is the fetal part of the placenta. We're still going to talk about the placenta now, and we'll be wrapping up the lecture. Yeah, so for the chorion itself, for the chorion. So, for the chorion, we have different um, 
types of villi. From, from that Korean, we have extensions into the maternal endometrium that was underlined. So once the fetus implants, that maternal endometrium, the name changes from endometrium to decidua because it undergoes what we call a decidua reaction, starts secreting more proteins and glycoproteins that are going to nourish the fetus. So that maternal endometrium, the name changes to, the, to decidua. So the one facing or the one directly adjacent to where the fetus implants, that portion of the decidua is going to be called the decidua basalis. Or you can say the one directly adjoining the embryonic pool of the developing uh, embryo or fetus is going to be called the decidua basalis. So the side of the maternal decidua or the other side of the original maternal endometrium that's adjacent or facing the embryonic pole or the other pole is going to be called the decidua capsularis. Then the remaining parts of the decidua will be called the decidua parietalis. So, blastocyst implants. This portion of the decidua where it's implanting, underneath it is the decidua basalis. The portion of the decidua on the other side is the decidua capsularis while the remaining endometrium that's not either on the embryonic or the abembryonic pole is the decidua parietalis. Same way for the Quranic villi to which are extensions from the Korean. So from your histology, you learn that some are going to extend. It's actually the cytotrophoblast that's evaginating or getting raised and pull, pushing the syncytiotrophoblast on top of it. So we have syncytiotrophoblast on top, cytotrophoblast core, and it's pushing to go and anchor itself into the maternal decidua basalis. So initially, from histology as a lens, you just have the cytotrophoblast. Later on, we'll have a mesodermal core developed within it. So when the villi, or when the villus singular is just made up of the cytotrophoblast, it's called the primary villus. Once it acquires a mesodermal core, it becomes the secondary villus. Then, in that mesodermal core, fetal blood vessels develop. And once that happens, the name changes from a secondary villus to a tertiary villus. Right? And for the villi too, there will be some that will go all the way to anchor into the maternal decidua, while some would go halfway or quarter way and they'll just be floating in the maternal intervillous spaces. So the ones that go all the way and anchor would be the anchoring villi, while the other ones that are floating would be the, the floating villus or the floating villi. Right? So the villi that will form on the side of the decidua basalis is going to be um, it's going to be quite extensive. We have room to, to customize. There are so many developments with it, and it looks bushy. So we call it the um, Korean frondosum or the villus Korean. The Korean frondosum or the villus Korean. Whereas the side that forms on the, the, the portion of the villus or the Korean that forms on the, around the region of the decidua capsularis they don't have as much nutrients as the ones in the region of the decidua basalis, so they are smooth. 
So we call them the Korean, um, the smooth Korean or the Korean Levy. It's just fancy names. Just remember, Velos Korean, smooth Korean. Right. So I already talked about the finger-like projections of the Quranic wall. We call them villi and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Then I already told you the once the blastocyst implants, the name of the endometrium changes from uh, endometrium to decidua. And I already explained decidua basalis, decidua capsularis, and the decidua parietalis. Yep. So, we're coming up to the very last or the penultimate sections of the lecture. So, we'll talk about the placenta, then we'll talk about twins, and we're out of it. At least my lecture is done. Yeah. So, Placenta. Placenta is that interface between the mother and the developing fetus or the developing embryo, depending on the, the stage that we catch it at. So because it's between the mother and the fetus, it's made up of both a maternal part and a fetal part. And from what I've said, I've told you that the fetal part is the chorion. And with, what were the three parts that I mentioned make up the chorion? Cytotrophoblast, cytotrophoblast, and extraembryonic somatic mesoderm. So, for the maternal part, it's just basic. It's just the decidua basalis that makes up the maternal part of the placenta. So, for the placenta, if you've ever walked around an obstetric ward, or maybe walked as a nurse or a midwife before, you would have seen the placenta. It's uh, maybe if you ever worked in a vet clinic, at least the same placenta of animals. So maybe if, your if you ever watch delivery of your pets, maybe your dog or your cat or something, if you were able to watch delivery. It's, it's not totally similar in all, in, in all animals, but the basic shape is kind of the same across board. So the, the human placenta is discoid in shape, 20 centimeters in diameter, 3 cm thick, it's half kg in weight. Then, like I said, it has a maternal surface and a fetal surface. So the maternal surface is rough, and it shows cotyledons demarcated by fissures. So it's rough, and we just have cotyledons. Cotyledons is like we just have like pockets. We just have like pockets demarcated by fissures. And remember, umbilical vessels traveling within the umbilicus are going to be going towards the maternal surface. So they are going to form an anastomosis or like an extensive network on the maternal surface. So, like I said, placenta, maternal component, decidua basalis, fetal components, the rough chorion or the villous chorion or the chorion frondosum. Then, with the development of the placenta, remember when I was talking about the sensitotrophoblast, I said they were going to be eroding into the endometrium towards the maternal blood vessels. But as they are doing that, you also start seeing cavities forming within the sensitotrophoblast that we call lacunae. So ultimately, when they erode into the blood vessels, maternal blood is going to form 
maternal blood is going to flow into those lacunae. And ultimately, what we're going to have is like a primitive uteroplacental circulation. And ultimately, what we're going to do is, at the end of the day, we will always have the, the placenta serving as the interface between maternal blood and fetal blood. They never mix. And why would fetal blood not mix with maternal blood? Because the mother will recognize the fetus as foreign. Why? Because the fetus, all the tissues in the fetus don't come from the mother. A bit come from the father. Right? And of course, if the mother recognizes the fetus as foreign, our immune system attacks the fetus and the pregnancy gets aborted, which for the most part we don't want, right? Because of that, that's why we have the placenta. So b before even talking about it, you know that the placenta is going to form a barrier between the fetus and the mother. And of course, because it's also forming that barrier, that means it has an immunologic function. It will stop, <clears throat> it will stop maternal white blood cells from attacking the fetal tissues. <clears throat> so like I said, this, the inter, the, those primitive lacunae that we had at the beginning going to expand into intervillous spaces once the villa is start growing. So intervillous spaces just means we just have spaces between the villas. And that's going to be bathed with maternal blood. I think when you guys do the female reproductive system, you see an histologic slide of the placenta and you see what I'm talking about. So, like I said, you will see some villi that will float in the intervillous spaces, which will be um, floating villi. And we said the most advanced stage of them will be the tertiary villi, meaning the love is a trophoblastic outer layer, the love inner core of mesoderm, then within the mesoderm you'll have blood vessels. Whereas I said for secondary villus, it will just be outer trophoblast inner mesoderm. While for primary villus, it will just be trophoblast only. And like I said, Gaseous exchange takes place between maternal blood and fetal blood across the placenta. Functions of the placenta protection, protects the fetus, obviously immunologic protection, also acts as barrier against um, some microbes getting to the fetus, though it doesn't block everything. Nutrition, the fetus gets its nutrients from the mother across the placenta. That was not a Pepsi advert. <laughs> yeah. So the fetus gets its nutrition. So that's the thing, right? Once you drink, you induce other people to drink. I can see people reaching for their cantons and water bottles. That's, that's, the, that's the selling point behind that Pepsi advert, actually. You watch the advert and you get thirsty and you want, want to go grab a Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. So nutrition. There's exchange of nutrients across the placenta. Then respiration, there's exchange of gases. The fetus, via the umbil umbilical arteries, sends its carbon dioxide that it's used to the mother. Then via the umbilical vein, receives oxygenated blood from the mother. Then excretion, like remember what we said the other time, anything that the fetus has pushed out, it's peed in the amniotic cavity, it's pulled inside it. Fetus don't really defecates into the amniotic cavity, but they urinate into it. So it swallows all that urine, gets into the umbilical vessels, gets pushed out through the placenta. Then the placenta produces hormones. You're going to learn a bit about that 
at some point in higher levels, but I'll just mention some. So remember, I said the sensitotrophoblast starts off with making HCG, right? And ultimately, it's the sensitotrophoblast is going to become a part of the placenta, meaning ultimately the placenta will be said to be responsible for making HCG. The placenta also produces um, progesterone, which takes over from the corpus lithium after the fifth month. The placenta produces something we call the human placenta lactogen. And also has another name that we call the human chorionic somatomammotropin. I prefer the second name because that explains the function. So it's a somatomammotropin, meaning it allows the fetus to grow. And it's a mammotropin because it, it also causes development of the breast in the mother. And how it does that is that some people will say that the fetus is a parasite. So whatever the mother gets, majority of it goes to the fetus. But this is a parasite that you want, right? So initially it starts off as a parasite, but later it's symbiotic because you're seeing your baby and everyone is seeing your baby. Oh, you have a lovely baby and all that. Right. But the, the, the key point is that the placenta ensures that whatever the mom gets, the fetus gets almost everything. So it takes a lot to really enjoy a fetus. Sometimes they'll even say if there's an accident and the mother dies, if you're able to intervene within 5 to 10 minutes, you can still save the fetus because the fetus is highly resistant to insults. So if the woman is not eating, majority of what she's eating goes to the fetus, which is why when, when females are pregnant, they, uh, they encourage them to take supplements because they know that whether they eat or they don't, the fetus is going to get most of what they take. So they need more, so as to be able to get some for themselves. And that's majorly as a result of the function of that human placental lactogen. So again, that's one of our fancy diagrams showing what we've been talking about. So most of these pictures, you get them in your before we are born, actually. So again, remember I said amnion fuses with chorion. I formed the amniochorionic membrane. The main stem villus that go all the way, the floating villus that float, spaces in between the intervillous spaces that contain maternal blood, the umbilical, umbilical cord containing one, one umbilical vein and two umbilical arteries. It's one umbilical vein and two umbilical arteries. That's, that's not... Um, Yeah, one umbilical vein and two umbilical arteries. And because the umbilical arteries are carrying deoxygenated blood, that's why they're painted blue. Yes. That's why it shouldn't just look at colors, right? Yeah. Then, of course, intervillous space, placenta, we've talked about it functions, endocrine function, respiratory function, excretory function, immunologic function, nutritive function. Again, you're still looking at placental circulation, same thing. And we've, we've been talking about the umbilical cord all this while. So now we'll be looking at umbilical cord anomalies. So what can potentially happen if we have an umbilical, if we have a short umbilical cord? I don't know. Let's, let's see. Let's look for an analogy. How many people do rock climbing here? Rock climbing, scale of 
or you scale up cliff walls and everything. So you know, one of the most essential equipments a mountaineer should have. They say you can forget everything, but you never forget your rope. Right? You forget your rope, you are seriously on your own. Right? And of course, when you are taking your rope, you don't just take a short length of rope. You, you, of course, whatever you want to go and climb, it's been measured. So you know maybe it's like 2,000 meters. But they also advise you to take an extra length just in case something happens or you fall into a crevice or, a, or an aperture that nobody knew was there. And why? Because if you are climbing up with the rope and your rope is too short, you can't get where you're going and sometimes you can't come back down. Same way in the mother too. If the umbilical cord is too short and of course if it does get, keeps growing bigger, it can put too much pressure on that cord and that cord can rupture. The, down, the flip side of that is if the cord is too long, there is too much cord around there floating around. So what can happen? The cord can twist around the fetal neck and strangle the fetus. And of course, if, um, if you've ever worked in an obstetric ward during delivery, this is an emergency. You're trying to deliver the fetal, the, the baby's neck, and you see cord around the neck. Everybody just starts screaming. People start shouting all over the place. If you are the most junior one, you don't do gangster medicine, you just scream for help, right? Then, of course, long cords can form knots, though you guys learned from histology that because of the mucus jelly, it doesn't, that doesn't readily happen, but if the cord is long enough, it can form knots. Then we can also have aberrant number of umbilical vessels. For the most part, you should have two umbilical arteries, but sometimes you can have just one umbilical artery, and that will lead to anomalies in the fetus, because that means we are not getting enough deoxygenated blood out of the fetus. Yeah, so now we're talking about placental anomalies. So in talking about placental abnormalities, we talk about abnormalities of adherence of the placenta to the uterine wall. Then we also talk about abnormalities of placental um, of implantation. So for the abnormalities of adherence, we have placenta accreta and we have placenta percreta. In placenta accreta, it's just that there is abnormal adherence beyond the limits of the decidual basalis. So sometimes it goes all the way through the functional layer and uh, through the basal layer of the endometrium. Sometimes it inserts into the myometrium. And for the most part, during pregnancy, you don't feel anything. But the problem shows up during delivery when the baby has been delivered and the placenta refuses to come out and the woman is bleeding. Right? For placenta percreta, that's even worse. It inserts through all the layers of the uterus and leads to third trimester bleeding. Sometimes it leads to torrential bleeding post-delivery or postpartum. Sometimes you have to remove the woman who's the female's uterus because you can't control the bleeding. The, the, the other thing is the placenta previa. For the placenta previa, it's that rather than we implanting in the posterior wall of the body or the fundus, we, we don't implant in the cervix, but we implant close enough to the cervix that as the placenta keeps expanding, it either is covering the cervical opening or it bridges it totally. And the problem with that shows up during, especially in the later half of pregnancy, if there's any stress, any pressure, maybe following intercourse, that the female starts bleeding. 
And of course, once the female starts bleeding, it's never a good thing, right? Because once she starts losing blood, and it's placental blood, the female is losing. Initially, it may be that she's losing only her own blood, but later on it may start affecting the fetus. Right. Then, the other thing we talk about is hemolytic disease of the newborn. So, normally there are microscopic breaks through the placenta, gets into the maternal blood. For the most part, there is no problem. The problem occurs if the resource status of the fetus and the mother are different. So if the fetus is resource positive, meaning he got it from the father, and the mother is resource negative, those fetal cells stimulate formation of the anti-resource antibody in the mother. For the most part, it doesn't affect the first child, except if there, were, if there was bleeding early in pregnancy, meaning the mother has gotten sensitized. So by the time it's coming towards delivery, maternal blood cells have gotten sensitized. The resource antibody crosses the placenta, and because the placenta is resource positive and we've formed antibodies against the resource factor, they attack the fetus. So that can cause hemolysis of the fetal red blood cells, anemia in the fetus. The fetus may die unless we deliver it early or unless we transfuse resource-negative blood, then one way we prevent this is that for such mothers, we give them prophylactic resource-immune globulin to suppress that reaction. So, for those of us who've, who've had children, we know that we need to assess fetal status from time to time. Then for some people, again, there are genetic diseases that run in the family. So, sometimes you want to test the child you're expecting to see if or not the child doesn't have any anomaly. So you do that by either testing the, am uh, the, amni the amnion itself. So that's amniocentesis. You just withdraw some of the amniotic fluid through the abdomen. We usually do that in the second trimester. That's from like 8 to 10 weeks. And it's low risk in experience than just about 0.5% risk of abortion. Another, th um, no, sorry, we do that in the second trimester. That's from um, week 14 to 16. Amniocentesis is done from week 14 to 16. I corrected myself here. Yeah. So for the coronic villus sampling, that can be done earlier because the coronic villus forms before we form the placenta. We can do it as early as the seventh week. Detects inborn um, errors of metabolism, anomalies, is done earlier. So we can decide earlier what we want to do. But the problem with that is, because it's done earlier, the fetal membranes and fetal tissues are just forming, so we can potentially damage them. So the risk of abortion is higher with coronic villus sampling compared to amniocentesis. So we can do alpha fetoprotein assay. It's a glycoprotein secreted by the fetus. It's increased in neural tube defects. Abdominal wall defects is decreased in Down syndrome. Then, of course, we can also sample blood we get from the umbilical cord. It's ultrasound guided, 20 weeks. Fetal monitoring, we monitor the fetal heart rate and that. So, your next clicker question is coming up. Yes, for the most part. For the most part, because if the pregnancy is low risk, it's, remember, this gets paid for, right? So it's a waste of the person's money if 
we keep monitoring when there is no anomaly or no problem that we are seeing. But with iris pregnancies, the amount of visits increase, the amount of tests we need to do increases, and of course the fees to increase. So we only do it in high-risk pregnancies based on the tests we've done previously. Yeah, yeah not just delivery. We, we, we monitor the status of the fetus and the mother during delivery, but this is monitoring during the pregnancy. Yes, so your next question is up. Really? So just keep clicking. So note the time of the pregnancy. She's eight weeks pregnant. So I'm waiting. So that's everyone, right? Yeah, I think so. So what's my answer? What's his C? Karani Villa sampling. Let's see if your answers match what you told me. Like you guys told me, the answer is coronic villa sampling. So, like I said, look this over. Don't just. Sorry, I'm taking your time, right? Um, we're almost done. The turning point messed up with our timeline. Yeah. So, final thing: twin pregnancies, dizygotic twins form from two zygotes is the most common type. And what happens is that the normally the ovary do like a switch system on off. So normally one ovary releases, the other one is on hold. The other ovary releases this cycle, the next is on hold. But sometimes both can release at the same time, and both can get fertilized by two different sperm. So you have two amnions, two chorions, the placenta may be fused. They may be of the same sex or different sexes, and they are called fraternal twins. Next type, monozygotic twins. So this is when one zygote divides into two different embryoblasts. And we, find, we, we develop two different embryonic primordia. So for the most part, they have, a, they have two amniotic sacs because we have two embryoblasts that develop, each develop their amniotic sacs. They have one chorionic sac and they have one placenta. And the final thing we'll do before I give you my last clicker question is 
twin transfusion syndrome. So this occurs especially with monozygotic twins because they have the same placenta. One twin may preferentially, one twin may preferentially get more, more of the blood. And that may lead to the twin being bigger and hyperemic while the other twin is anemic and smaller. And of course, if the embryonic disc is incompletely divided, we come down with conjoined twins. I'll ask a question. It's all working. Yeah, it's working. So that's everyone? Okay. All right, guys. Thank you. So, my answer is... Is the amnitic cavity C.